I was listening to a, a deal the other day by uh, J. Edwin Orr. You guys remember him? The big revival guy. And he was talking about uh, George Whitfield. And um, I guess uh, a lot of people testify that uh, George Whitfield was gifted in many, many ways. But one of them was uh, the projection of his voice. And apparently, there's a few kind of creepy stories. You're like, is that more myth or folklore or real? But apparently, he was uh, at times... Uh, you know, he'd, he'd go back and forth across the Atlantic. And oftentimes when he was uh, on a ship sailing, um, they said that other ships that were in the area would gather on Sunday mornings and would sail closer to the ship that George Whitfield was on so that he could preach a sermon and all the other fleeting ships had a Sunday church service as well. So it's like, that's pretty wild. But I don't have a George Whitfield voice, so thank you for the microphone. It has nothing to do with the sermon. The sermon's going to be on a text. We're going to dive into the Bible. I don't have any jokes to get us started, so let's go ahead and dive in. Mark 3, if you guys have your Bible, open it up. Mark chapter 3. And it looks like I'm being selective because I'm not going to be covering the first portion nor the last. I had to be selective because I don't think you guys want me to be up here for two or three hours, so... Maybe some will fill in the gaps for us later, but for today, that's what we're going to be looking at. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. So I'll go ahead and read. I'm actually going to split this up into two different portions, two different sections. So first, I'm going to read verses 7 through 19. We'll look at that as kind of the first portion, and then I'll read the second half of the chapter, and we'll look at that as kind of the second portion. So starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we'll look at that as the first portion of the text. You'll remember for Saturday seminar stuff, um, we're going through a seminar, obviously, the second portion on how to study your Bible well, how to be good exegetes, right? how to be responsible in studying the scriptures. And uh, one of the principles that uh, I think we've talked about, or if not, it'll come up at some point, is that if something repeated a few times, it's probably somewhat important. And so there's a specific word here that I'm going to point out that's repeated not a ton of times, it's only just twice. And you're like, don't make too much of this. It's a pretty minor word, but I am going to make much of it, okay? Because I think there's something to it. That's the word with. The word with. Say in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples. Okay, whatever. Look at verse 14. He appointed 12, designating them apostles. And so a lot of people that were following Jesus, but only 12 get this special access. And what is their role? What it says, that they might be with him. That's the first thing it mentions about those who he decides, who he appoints, who he selects. The twelve. They get to be with him. They get special access to Jesus. A lot of withness that these 12 get with Jesus. So these 12 are appointed to be apostles okay, or, or, or disciples, right? Whatever we want to say. Um, a key element to this word disciple, you know, Tad's talked about this a lot and mentioned it, but a key element is that a disciple is at its core, someone who's a learner, right? It's someone 
who is essentially a student. And a key element here of Jesus' program of discipleship is that his 12 be together with him a lot, that they observe him, they watch him, they listen to him, and they're always learning from him. He's in the synagogue, they're there. He's walking to the next town, they're going with him, normally not in front of or behind him. He's staying night somewhere or another, they're with him. If he's casting out demons, they're with him. Notice he is there. If he's doing healings, they're with him. Any ministry situation, he's with them. Any sort of one-on-one encounter he's having, they normally get to kind of be a part of it some way or another. The disciples were often and almost always with Jesus. And so, like I said, that word disciple means learner or student, but the point of a disciple, especially when we think about first century Israel, then and there, think back then, okay, a disciple was someone who his main goal was to be like his teacher. In every way possible, be like him. That started with thinking like him, processing like him, viewing the world like him, but that led to talking like him, to doing life like him, functioning like him, everything like him. That was the point of a disciple. It was someone who's saying, I'm going to sit underneath of my teacher and I want to become like him. And so the point of a disciple is someone who, yes, was a student. Yes, they were a learner, but it was for the purpose of imitation. Imitate every aspect of life. That's why Jesus called the 12, is to be students and learners for the purpose of imitating him in every single way. There's an interesting verse uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 40. You can look at it real quick and it says, Everyone who is trained, fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's what Jesus says. If you're fully trained, you're going to be just like that teacher that you're following, that you're sitting underneath, that you're sitting at the feet of. And so that was what these disciples were called to do, appointed to do, supposed to do. So the question is, if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, do we do that? Now, obviously, we can't follow him around synagogue to synagogue. Okay? We can't sit at the campfire with him as he's outside of Bethsaida or wherever he is. Right? We can't do that. But we still get to spend time with Jesus. We get to spend time learning from who he was through these wonderfully profound historical documents that God inspired and preserved so that we can learn about what he did, what he taught, who he was. Do you spend time with Jesus? That's what it means to be a disciple of him, at least in some part, is that you're learning to imitate him. But first, you got to spend time with him. I was uh, doing a Bible study recently with my dad, and um, it's been so fun the last couple months. Um, we've been reading through some of the Gospels together and kind of... Um, talking about different passages and doing a weekly Bible study. And um, I think it was two weeks ago that uh, we looked at one of my favorite passages. It's normally one of the passages I'll start with when I start discipling someone. It's Luke chapter 10, 38 to 42. It's that passage with Mary and Martha, right? And Jesus says very profoundly to Mary that she has done the one necessary thing. What was it? Sit at the feet of Jesus. And uh, like I said, it's been so fun studying the Bible with my dad. So we read through that whole passage. And um, afterwards, I know I'm saying, hey, dad, what questions do you have? And um, my, my mom and dad are here, so you should say hi to them. I'm not trying to embarrass them. You should say hi to them. They're wonderful. Um, but I said, dad, do you have any questions? He goes, yeah. He goes, something along the lines of, so does that mean that if I go through my whole day and I don't spend time learning from Jesus and hearing his word. That's kind of a waste. And um, I thought of an analogy. And uh, my dad's a farmer and uh, he farms with my older brother, Trent. They're kind of in partnership or cooperation of the farm. And so I gave him an analogy. And I said, well, dad, let's say this happens. And, and my dad's kind of, in some sense, the boss. He's a little bit older, of course, than my, uh, he's way older than uh, my older brother. And so, like, for example, uh, today, my, my mom and dad, they had to come up here earlier um, 
farmers and ranchers, they got cattle. Those cattle always got to eat every single day. Okay? You can't take vacation from feeding them. So he came up here early today to be here. Um, but my older brother, Trent, had to um, feed the cattle. Right. So I said, Dad, let's say that you give Trent one job for the day that he needs to do, one that's necessary and important. Let's say it's feed the cattle because that has to happen. Cattle have to eat. Then after that, you say, you know, you can do a lot of other things. There's always fixed defense. There's always trees to cut. Hey, on a farm, you know, there's holes to dig, windmills to rope. I'm just making stuff up, of course, but there's always stuff to do. Right? And what if you come back to Trent at the end of the day and say, Trent, how was your day? What'd you get done? He goes, oh, it's, it's great, Dad. You know, I, I got the fence put up or the fence tore down. And, uh, you know, I did this, that, or another. I vaccinated the cattle, whatever. But the dad goes, well, did you feed the cattle? Well, no, did you hear me? I did all these other things. The one thing I needed you to do, son, is feed the cattle, is what my dad would say. I said, right? He goes, yep, that's right. And um, I guess if Trent ever listens to this, he goes, and Trent does do that sometimes. I think he's going to look like a, something like that. I think he said, or in the past, similar sort of situations. Um, Being with Jesus so that you can be a learner and a student of his in order to imitate him is just like that. You got to do the one thing that he asked you to do first. You can do all the other things. Yeah. But you got to do the one necessary thing first. You've got to spend time with Jesus. Now, an interesting, I guess, sort of sub point to this. Um, you have a verse in 1 Corinthians 11, kind of what Paul says to the church of Corinth. Follow me. But Jesus was the only one we follow. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Okay, so there's this interesting little subpoint that though we're disciples primarily of Jesus, there's also people that are disciples of him that are way better at it, that have been doing it for way longer, that are way more experienced and who know a lot more than us. And we should learn from them. We should allow them to speak into our life. Okay, we should also all, for the most part, always have someone who's kind of discipling us, who's helping us to follow Jesus more closely, who's answering any questions we have, who's helping us to to work through different life issues or dilemmas that we have, who's helping to make sure that we're on track in this following Jesus thing. Okay, so we should all have someone who's like that as well. And so here's the lesson. If someone's discipling you, if someone's mentoring you, and again, you should have that person in your life, especially as a younger believer and for quite a while, especially, but really probably, I think Tad would say at all point, you should always have someone that's kind of mentoring, speaking into your life that's further along in the faith than you. That person. And you've got to be with that person and spend time with that person. So have time with someone who is further along in the faith with you and get time with them. It's important. I remember um, some of my earliest lessons as a young Christian came just because I was spending time with someone who was further along in the faith than me. I was like, interesting, I learned something. Um, There was a time where a guy named Ryan, who was really influential for me early on in my walk with the Lord, um, I was just spending time with him. I was just doing life with him. I was just often spending time doing whatever he did, following him along. And uh, one night we did the oh-so-holy thing of going to a country music concert. And um, it was a free concert. And if you know me, that's why I went. And um, country music concert, Weber Arena. And um, by and large, people that go to country music concerts, and I'm not throwing out any shade, so to speak, but especially women don't normally dress the most modest. And I was a young Christian. And um, as a young Christian, I knew, you know, the whole purity thing, but that hadn't really grabbed hold of me much. And um, Ryan, who had been walking with the Lord for quite a while longer, as we're sitting in line there waiting, he goes, man, he goes, all of these women just dress so immodestly, so purely. And in my very, very young Lord mind, I'm like, no. And Ryan goes, and it really stinks. It really stinks if that's the case. 
And all of a sudden, just his comment and the fact that we are spending time together, living life, I realized that he is someone who is much further along the walk. The Lord was way off from me. And that his mindset and his way of viewing and processing this situation was more of what reflected Christ's mind in the situation, way of viewing and processing this. And it was just, it was a small thing. I told him that like years later, I was like, you know, one of the most pivotal things that you said was, yeah, it stinks. He's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, yeah, but, but guys, spend time with people who are more mature than you. Live life with them, do stuff with them, okay? You learn, do whatever you can to get with people who are further along than you. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that's a good principle, okay? The, the company I work for, um, the guy who kind of leads the company is always like rah, rah. And uh, he's like, if those people who know what you don't know, you have experience that you don't have, you should do whatever you can to get it. And it's like, yeah, that applies to the Christian life too, okay? I remember early on, a um, few years later, um, Andrew Holscher, some of you guys know, he's a guy who kind of uh, had a role mentoring me. And uh, Andrew Holscher is a busy guy. He's got a lot on his plate. And I wanted to get time with this guy. There was a lot that he knew. There was a lot that he had the goods to that I just wanted to get access to. And um, the only time we could ever meet was like 5 a.m. It's like, I don't care. I don't care if it's 3 a.m. I got to be there because I got to learn from this guy. He's got something that I need. I want to learn from. I remember there was a time where I was back home for a weekend. He lived back around home and asked him if he could get together. He goes, nope, can't get together. I said, shucks, why? He goes, I'm going to Texas. Okay, I'll go with him. He's leaving at 3 a.m. Okay, sounds good. You know, I'll be there. Like I didn't ask. I'm like, I'm telling you though, I'm coming. You know, like whatever you can do. And we spent, I don't we went to some no-name West Texas town. I don't care. I got hours in the car with him on the way back, hours on the way there. And I got to learn. I still remember things that that they told me, taught me, instructed me during that time. Okay. You've got to get with people who are further along than you, spend time with them, and you got to fight to be able to do so. Okay? One of the key things here. Now, let's zoom back into the text for a second. What was Jesus actually doing in this text that we just read? Okay, Look at, uh, where are we at here? Verse 10. He healed many. We were just talking about this. Tad mentioned it. Michael and all that's going on there. Jesus is healing people. Verse 11, evil spirits saw him. They fell down before him. He's delivering people from demonic bondage. That's what Jesus is doing. He's healing and delivering people from demonic bondage. So notice in verse 14, as we go forward, here's what he says. You're the 12. You're going to be with me. And then I'm going to send you guys out. What is he going to send them out to do? One, preach. Claim a message that Jesus is going to give them. And two, he says, to drive out demons. He says, in the future, you guys are going to do that. So when does he send them out to do that? Fast forward a couple chapters. It's chapter six. Okay? Chapter six, verse seven. Jesus finally actually does send them out to do that. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the parallel passages, meaning the passages that other gospel writers also document this event, okay? Matthew and Luke also talk about this. When Jesus sends out the 12 on kind of their first little quasi-mission, so to speak. And um, it says that he sends them out and he gives them authority to drive out demons and to heal all sicknesses. You'll see this in Matthew 10, uh, beginning of the chapter, verse 1, and then uh, the beginning of Luke 9 as well. So Jesus here, he says, I'm going to send you out to preach and to drive out demons. And then when he actually sends them out, okay? What he actually does is he sends them out to preach, drive out demons, and heal. Wait, that's what Jesus is doing. Yep, exactly. So Jesus says, whatever I've been doing, hopefully you've been with me, watching me, observing, listening, so that when I send you out, you can do the same thing. That kind of reflects what living as a disciple should be. We learn from Jesus. He does it. We learn from him as he does. And then he sends us out to do it. So. Regular practice in Jesus' ministry. We saw this in Mark 1, okay, uh, that either uh, Matt or Jason preached on, okay? Jesus is always going around, casting out demons, delivering people from the bondage of Satan. And, and, and he's healing people of physical maladies and diseases. 
Okay. This is really just the regular part of his ministry. And what's interesting is as believers in Christ that are born again, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, we have the power to do this. We have the power to deliver people from demonic bondage and to heal people. Why is Tad standing up here saying we haven't seen Michael healed? Well, because one, there's a lot of mystery and there's some things that we don't fully understand. But two, and much bigger, is because we oftentimes don't have the skill set to do it. We don't have the skill set to do it. So we might have the power and authority to do it, but we don't actually have the knowledge of how to do it. Why do you think that after Jesus gave the disciples the power and authority to drive out demons down the road, if you remember, you guys ever read Matthew, what is it, 17, Mark 9, Luke 9? They couldn't cast out a demon. What then? Jesus had already given them the power and authority. They should have been able to do that. You're right. They didn't have enough knowledge, skill set. They hadn't developed enough. There was something they were missing. Okay. So for everyone here who's a Christian, seated in the heavenly, you have the power and authority to do those things. But you've also got to learn. How do you learn? Sit at the feet of Jesus, learn from him. He'll teach you how to kind of grow and become more competent in these things. Okay. It's, it's kind of like I thought of uh, Richard, actually, when I was thinking about this concept. It's looked at me. Um, Richard, as we know, uh, by career and profession, is uh, a police officer for Riley County Police Department. And um, Richard has been given both power and authority by the Riley County Police Department. Now, let's say that, um, I don't think this is how it went. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But let's say that uh, he went in there and they immediately gave him the power. What's the power? Oh, you know, you got your, you know, vest and you probably got a gun of some sort. I'm showing a lot of naivety here on your side, right? You've got probably some uh, handcuffs. And I don't know if you got a taser or a bat. You've got power. And they also, oh, and we give you authority. They give you a badge. They give you the uniform, you know. By us, stamp of approval, Riley County Police Department. We can do the power and authority. Now go do the cop thing. Like, if that's all he has, he's not going to do the cop thing very well. Now, luckily, he went through a lot of training, a lot of instruction in order to know how to do the cop thing well. So we've all been given power and authority. We need to go through training and a lot of it in order to learn how to do the disciple thing well so we can do the things that jesus was doing that he sends his disciples out to do as well okay? so let's be people who are serious about spending time with jesus so we can learn how to do those things the list of the 12 is given i wish i could give a bio of all the 12 but i don't have time there is some interesting things about the list but we're just going to skip over that okay? so we're going to look at the second portion of the text here now. Verses 20 through 30 is what we're going to be looking at. So if you got your Bible, that's what we're going to read through here. 20 through 30. I'm going to start verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them, and he spoke to them in parables. So here's Jesus' response. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If the house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end is come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. He said this. Because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Notice the disciples are with Jesus when this happens. 
Jesus entered a house, crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. His disciples are with him. And so again, just kind of pounding home this last point of what we just looked at in the passage above. Now, what actually happens here? Let's kind of talk about what goes on, what transpires, kind of a really bizarre sort of scene here. Um, what we see here in this text is that his family comes and they call Jesus loony, deranged, out of his mind. And then we see that the teachers of the law, so the religious leaders, and they came all the way from Jerusalem. So they came from the south, they came a ways, and they came to see Jesus. And then they make a charge against him. They say he's, he's possessed by bills above, and by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. And so it seems as if Jesus' response he gives here, this whole, I'm going to tell you a couple of parables or stories thing, it's all in response to what these religious leaders say when they say, you're possessed by Beelzebub. You guys know Beelzebub, the character in the Bible? Beelzebub? Who's that? Well, let's, let's zoom out and look at some context first. Um, again, it's always helpful whenever we're dealing with a passage that's in a gospel. If we can see that there are parallel passages, if we can see that there are other gospel writers that talk about this same passage, sometimes they give us some more info or insight that for some reason this author didn't choose to give us. And it's just helpful for us in understanding kind of the broader whole context. And so this, uh, this account, this scene is also documented by Matthew in Matthew chapter 12. So let's go to Matthew 12 and just look at what happens there in Matthew's recounting of it, because it's going to give us a few more pieces of information that are going to be really helpful in understanding the dynamic of what's going on here. So Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 22 is where we're starting. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see this healing thing again. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beel. Okay, so then we pick up. So, so what Matthew just gave us, verses 22 to 23, is new information that Mark didn't give us. So this question that the Pharisees or the religious leaders posed to Jesus, or this accusation, I guess you could call it, this accusation, He's doing it in the name of Beelzebub, which I've just said that a bunch, by the way. That's uh, most people call that. Most people, uh, most scholars uh, are pretty confident he's referring to Satan. And Beelzebub is some sort of term somehow or another that is just referring to Satan. We'll get to that. But they're making this statement that Jesus is driving out demons in the name of Satan. So verse 22 to 23, Jesus does a, he does a miracle. There's a healing. Bonafide, real, legitimate. There's a whole crowd. There's a lot of people seeing it. There's a guy who is blind. He can't see. He's mute. He can't speak. Jesus heals him. That's a pretty clear, evident sign. And that's a bonafide miracle. And so Jesus does a miracle. And basically, we can go back to Mark now because we understand what the context is. Jesus just performed a healing. The crowd saw it. And they're like, man, this guy's pretty crazy. Maybe he's the son of David. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one we've been waiting for. No, Pharisees aren't going to let that happen. They're not going to let the crowd think that this guy is really, Jesus is really the Messiah. But they can't deny that he just did something miraculous. I mean, that's pretty obvious. It's pretty clear that this guy who couldn't see can, couldn't talk can. So they can't say, no, that miracle wasn't real. So what do they do? Only alternative is just to say, yeah, real bona fide miracle, but he's doing it by the power of Satan, not of God. That's how he's doing it. He's tapping into some evil supernatural power. He's not doing it by the power of God. That's what these religious leaders are accusing Jesus of doing. Doing it by the power of Beelzebub or by the power of Satan. So they don't deny the miracles. They just say the source of the miracles isn't God. It's Satan, the devil. So Jesus is now responds. And he responds by kind of telling two stories. And in effect, Jesus' response is this. 
nope, that's wrong. And that's actually a really stupid thing to say. And I'm going to tell you why. And so story number one, he tells him why. He says, first off, Satan doesn't depose himself. And there's no internal division. There's no civil war with Satan. Basically, he's saying Satan may be evil, but Satan's not stupid. And he's not going to undermine himself. He's not going to cut out his own legs. And so if you think I'm sitting here casting out demons in the name of Satan, he goes, and Satan is, well, he's actually opposing himself. And he's not going to do that. He's way smarter than any of you guys here. That's a true thing. Satan's smart. He's brilliant. He's not going to clash with himself. And so Jesus goes, no, I'm not casting out Satan by the name of Satan because that just doesn't make sense. Second thing he says, he tells his story. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. But Jesus tells this quick little story. He goes, okay, so there's a, a guy that's got a house, a lot of possessions in it, and the house is guarded at the door by a really, really strong man. Can't get in, can't get the possessions. Unless it goes to what? You got to bind up this strong man and you got to tie him up somehow or another. And then you can get in and then you can get the possessions. The second story Jesus tells. Kind of a peculiar story, right? What is he saying? What's he trying to communicate? Throughout the Bible, we see this theme that one of the purposes of Jesus was to come undo or thwart the works of Satan, the works of the devil. Said in First John three, Colossians two. There's this really interesting verse that said he made a he made a public spectacle of the evil powers, triumphing over them by the cross. And Jesus's mission was in large part to destroy the works of Satan. So in this little story, Satan represents the strong man for the house and jesus goes i have come and with my life with my perfect righteousness with my death on the cross when i was placed in the grave three days later i rose again through that i have tied up and bound that strong man who is in front of the house he's now bound up he's tied so he can now rush into his house and then get his possessions what are his possessions? What are Satan's possessions? Satan's possessions are people. He wants people. He doesn't care about physical objects or land. He wants people. Two things I want to mention here. One, our mission as Christians is to be the people who rush in. Jesus has done the work of bounding, binding the strong man. As Christians, we now rush in, we storm that house, and we find those people who are Satan's possessions, who are under the power of Satan, which isn't just some really, really evil group of people over here. That's everyone, and it once included all of us. Every single one of us. And the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2, right, that we're all under the power of the ruler, the spirit of air. Okay? And we're all, at one point or another, under the power of Satan. We're held in bondage by him as well as our own lusts. And as Christians, our job is to rush in there and to find those people and to be rescuers. How are we rescuers? What is this amazing message called the gospel? That is a message that rescues. And... I'm saying this at the expense that hopefully I don't embarrass him. I don't think I will. Um, Isaac's a cool guy here. Um, it's his first time here. You guys should all meet him and say hi if you haven't after the service. Um, but what? Today's Sunday. Two days ago, um, I met Isaac on campus. And I shared this gospel message with him. This message that is able by the power of God to bring people out of the bondage and the power of Satan into the kingdom of life, into the power of God. I shared that with him. And, and he had actually a church background. Um, he grew up casually involved in church. 
they just said, hey, no one's ever kind of laid it out that clear, that straight, just kind of, you know, this is what the Bible says. Here's how you get saved. Here's how you know that you can be made right with God. It's like, yeah, that's easy. And I told him, you know, as John Wesley always said, right? Like a lightning bolt from heaven, you can get saved. You can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, Colossians 1, like that. Like, that's that's what the message is. I'm like, well, how? Well, let me share it with you. There's a beautiful message, that message of the gospel. Okay? The message of the gospel being that all of us at some point or another, again, we're under the power of Satan because of our own sin and that we deserve eternal death. But that Jesus Christ, being rich in mercy, came to earth, lived a perfect life, and again, he really went to the cross, not because of happenstance or circumstance, okay? He went there on mission in order to absorb the wrath of God that was due to each and every one of us poured out upon him. He took the punishment that we deserve, that after his resurrection three days later, we could have the prize that he himself earned, which is union with God, relationship with God, being brought into rightness with God with God, no longer under the power of the evil one, but now being slaves to God, not slaves to Satan. That's the gospel message. And I shared that with Isaac, maybe in different words, definitely different words, but the same message. And at that point it goes, well, yeah, I said, well, there's one, there's one more thing. You can't just acknowledge it's true. You got to, there's this Lord thing. It's pretty important. And I explained this Lord thing to him that you guys have heard many times. And he goes, yeah, sounds good. Okay. And so we, we, we prayed right there on the spot. Okay. And then you had to get to class. But all that to be said, the mission that we as Christians are on is to realize that Jesus did the thing we couldn't do by binding Satan, the strong man, but that now it's our role and our task to rush into the house to grab Satan's possessions and to bring them out and claim them as God's. And that doesn't just mean get people saved, get them in the door. It doesn't mean pick off converts. Hey, that means get people to come to know God, yes, in relationship with God, and then make them these disciple things that I talked about earlier. Okay? Make them so that they're learners. Make them so that they're students. Make them so that their life imitates the life of Jesus. That's our role as Christians. That's everyone here's role. Hopefully you realize that. Hopefully you're engaging in that. And if not, you oughta, because you're called to, you're given the power and authority to, and it's actually the most fun thing you can do in life. Okay? So that's what Jesus is saying there. And that's what Jesus is saying with this whole story. Now, I want to make a quick comment, a quick note. I don't know if I'm doing one time. Um, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit thing. I want to make a comment on this verse on this phrase look at verse 28 jesus says i tell you the truth all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them but whoever blasphemes against the holy spirit will never be forgiven he is guilty of an eternal sin that's why i mention this because again i know that uh for some people people that rightfully so take the bible seriously they take god's word seriously um this passage has induced fear and terror, and it has crippled them. I want to talk real quick and just make a few notes on what Jesus is saying here and what he's not saying. Here's what Jesus isn't saying. He's not saying that there's one sin that if you do, God can just never forgive it, ever, ever, ever. So maybe it's murder. If you murder someone, can't be forgiven. Some of Jesus saying, or, or adultery, fornication, Jesus can't put it out. I've heard people say that suicide is an unforgivable sin. That's just ungrounded, unfounded. It's grasped out of nowhere. It's it's nothing that's scripturally based. Okay? Some people say maybe denying Jesus under pressure is an unforgivable sin. You're in a threat of persecution and, and you deny the name of Jesus and knowing him. Yeah, it's not the unforgivable sin. Some people seem to think it's just like a heat of a moment thing where you just utter some sort of blasphemy at one point in time. You're you know, under pressure and there's, you know, a bunch of rage in your heart and you just said something and no matter how much you come to God and try to repent everything, you can't be forgiven because at one time, six or five or however many years ago, you said that one thing at that one place. That's not blasphemy of the spirit and what Jesus says is the sin that will never be forgiven, the sin that is eternal. So what is it? What is it? Well, Again, 
the passage in Matthew that we looked at earlier that gave us some context gives us the same sort of structure of teaching, at least. Um, Jesus says something similar there. You can look at it. Okay? But that needs to be considered because who's the one who Jesus is saying is guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, he seems to be saying at least that they're not necessarily guilty, but they're at least in danger of being guilty of it. Those religious leaders. We saw a clear, bona fide, undeniable miracle of Jesus, and that they, in the face of knowing that this proves Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, say, nope, nope. I know that's true, but I'm going to ball up my fist at it. Let me explain it with that. That's who Jesus is directing this at, okay, is those people. Those people. And not people who are sincerely repentant, coming to Jesus, asking for forgiveness. That's not who Jesus is directing this whole teaching at. He's directing it at the religious leaders who just saw a miracle of Jesus and are saying, nope, Jesus did the miracle, but it was in the power of God not in the power, excuse me, the power of Satan, not in the power of God. Let me share, this might be helpful. Sam Storms, um, he's a New Testament scholar, he's a pastor as well. He does great work. He says this, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is willful, wide-eyed slandering of the work of the Holy Spirit, attributing to the devil what was undeniably divine. Again, that's what the religious leaders just did. The miracles performed by Jesus were credentials of heaven, but the religious leaders declared them to be credentials of hell. So this wasn't some one-time momentary slip-up or inadvertent mistake in judgment, he says. This was a persistent, lifelong rebellion in the face of inescapable and undeniable truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act committed only once in a moment of rage or rebellion. It is a callous heart is a callous attitude over a long period of time it is a persistent defiance he says that hardens and it calcifies the heart it's not just unbelief it is the denial of what one knows beyond the shadow of a doubt to be true and yet they still deny it and that's what this last man of the holy spirit seems to be referring to and so remember, all of Mark, starting at the beginning, Jason talked about it, right? Jesus' message is repent. For the kingdom of God is near. Throughout the entirety of the Gospels, and then even into the epistles, forgiveness is always possible. Condition. Repent. Repent, you can be forgiven. That's the only condition necessary in order to be forgiven. You got to repent. Change your mind about this very thing. Turn away from it. Turn to the Lord. That's the condition. And so when you look at Matthew 28, it says, I tell you the truth, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. All sins and blasphemies will be forgiven upon the condition of repentance. But he says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. So he's not saying that... He's saying all sins of which you genuinely repent of can be forgiven. He's not saying you can repent of all sins, but there's one that you will repent of that I won't be able to forgive. What he's saying is that this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this denial of something that's clearly God, he says it causes one to go beyond repentance because they have hardened their heart. It comes from someone, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that is so callous that he is actually not able repent. The only sin that's unforgivable is the one that isn't repented of. And so if you're not in a place where you can repent because your heart is so callous to God, then that is an unforgivable sin. That's what Jesus is referring to here. And so if you tremble and if you're broken at this and, 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 and you come for God and say, I hope I didn't do it. If that's your attitude, then you didn't do it. And so just repent of whatever it is you think it is that might be the unforgivable sin, but it's not, and just repent and you're forgiven. So that's good news. One final thing I want to look at here. Thanks, Joe. Uh, I was telling Jason, Mark 3, it's actually the 
rejection and denial of Jesus chapter. You guys know that? I'm about to show you how. Jesus rejected and denied a lot in this chapter. Maybe more than any other chapter in terms of the frequency of which it happens. Maybe not. I didn't do a survey, but believe this. Did you notice that in verse 21, it says, his family heard about this. They heard about him teaching, doing whatever he does. They went to take charge of him, his family. My family comes and supports me and they listen to me teach. Can you imagine my family said what they said to him? He's out of his mind. We feel pretty hurt. My parents come just the whole time. He's insane. Don't listen to him, guys. As a child, we dropped him. Everything he's feeling is nonsense. You know, um, Jesus is facing some real rejection here. I mean, for real, if you guys, in all seriousness, imagine that, right? If, 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 if your family, as you're going about doing whatever you think God wants you to, they're telling you that you are crazy, you're loony, you're insane, you're out of your mind. There's better things to be doing. Why are you giving your life to Jesus? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And Jesus is facing rejection right here by those who God desires are closest to the family. God, God designed the family unit, right? And these people here, his family, which would be presumably his mother, Mary, interesting. Um, Mary's a great woman, but Sorry, I can be facetious sometimes. I'm like, what do you think of that, Catholic? <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have said that. Um, maybe it wasn't Mary. Maybe it was just his brothers. But his family is calling him out of his mind, right? And then you have the religious leaders, and they're doing the same things, right? So the religious gurus, the religious nuts, and they're saying, again, that he's possessed by Satan. And then it ends here in verse 30 by saying, they said this because... Or he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So they're accusing Jesus, the man of perfect moral righteousness with no flaw, to be demonized. Wild. So he's facing rejection from his family. Now he's facing it from religious leaders. Didn't look at verse seven. Uh, sorry, we did. We didn't look at verse six, but in verse six, it says the Pharisees. And the Herodians went out and plotted how they would kill Jesus. So again, the Pharisees, they're going to kill Jesus. Herodians, that's a politically minded group. So now we've got a political group that's opposing Jesus, rejecting him. Jesus is facing rejection like crazy. And, and that's just in this chapter, right? Really, that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Remember Luke 4? Look back to his hometown, Nazareth, Mark 6, Mark 7, Mark 6. Nazareth, his hometown. Run him out. Try to kill him. Maybe like five, six years ago, Tad, remember I did something in my hometown of Ellsworth um, and you came, I did a little thing at the park, right? What would it be like if literally, I mean, it's like in the very beginning and onset, you know, booing me and then the point where they're trying to take my life. That's what Jesus encountered. That's think about that. It's wild. You go back to your hometown, your home. Hometown is in opposition. It's supposed to be the good old boy, you know? You come back, and because of the message you're preaching, you want to stone you. Some of his closest followers. Then you got a large group of people in John 6 that reject him and leave. What about Judas? Three years of Jesus' life poured into this man. And then he's the very one who's responsible for Jesus' arrest and subsequent murder. How do you feel? You disciple someone. We're talking about discipleship. You disciple someone. Put your life in them for three years. You're with them through the thick and the thin. And you pray with them. You minister to them. You cry with them. You shed tears. And then all of a sudden, Alan turns me into the authorities. That be that's, that's, that's the rejection that Jesus went through. Even Peter, right? Even the one who said, I'll never reject you, right? I'll die before I reject you. And he does in front of a you know little girl three times. I don't have time to Here's what I want to make a point of. There's a question I'll ask you guys. Have you guys undergone rejection? Yeah. Probably everyone at some point has, whether it's your parents, whether it's your home, whether it's your friends, whether it's your family, whether it's even sometimes our spouses can hurt us and we can interpret it as rejection, right? 
If you've undergone rejection, join the club, because so did the holy, perfect, and righteous Jesus. He did too. Here's the thing. When most of us go through rejection, normally it elicits some sort of not so good, not so great or positive response. We don't see that out of Jesus. He goes through a lot of rejection here throughout the entirety of his life. When we go through rejection, whatever form that might look like, how do we respond? For a lot of people, it could be insecurity, right? For a lot of people, right? I mean, it could be something like anger or aggression, emotional breakdowns, maybe you become depressed or anxious. Maybe you compromise, you know, to become a people pleaser, you know, because they're rejecting you because they want you to go this way instead you're going this way. It's like, I'll just compromise and I'll just go the way that my parents wanted me to because, yeah, that way they won't continue to reject me and push me toward the fringes. And maybe you take a, I'll show them sort of attitude. And I'll show that I'll prove it to them that I can really be someone and be something. This is the response that a lot of us have to rejection. I want to point out something. That's not at all the response that Jesus had. So when Jesus was rejected, he was secure in himself and who he was. He was rooted. He was composed. He was unshaken. He was unfazed. He was undeterred in his mission for God. That's pretty cool. Because considering that all of us have and will go through rejection at some point or another, I want to learn how to be like that. I want to learn how to respond like that because I often don't, and I know a lot of us often don't. So the question is, how was Jesus able to do that? Like, how was Jesus able to go through such levels of rejection, way more than any of us been through, and just be that way, secure and he was, rooted, just unfazed? Just, yep. How? I think an interesting little tidbit at least or an interesting indicator that could give us an answer is found earlier in mark jason preached on it mark chapter one the baptism of jesus right? we all know the story right but he's baptized by john the baptist and when he comes up what happens god the father speaks and god the father says you are my son my love with you, I am well pleased. You're my son and my love. With you, I'm well pleased. Do you not think those words of acceptance from God the Father were ringing in Jesus' ear when he was being rejected by the religious leaders, or when he was being rejected by his family, or by Jews, or whoever? He goes, I've got God's stamp of approval. God said, I'm his son. And God said that I'm one of whom he loves. And that what I'm doing, he's well pleased. Meaning, I'm doing the Lord's will. But it'd be really good if we could have that same heart posture all the time. Right? Like, so this is something I was trying to think about something recent. And this is this is a small thing, right? But for me, something that at least came to mind. Um, as you guys know, I do the whole thing where I go out on campus every week. And um, somehow, one way or another, uh, the message got to me from someone that another individual, another Christian, not involved with our church, but another Christian, um, had kind of poo-pooed on campus evangelism and what we do and it's kind of silly and stupid and never want anyone to Jesus and it's kind of a dumb idea. And I don't know why but somebody else so, you know I was like that for about 30 seconds. And after that I was like, oh no, I'll show them. No it's not. I'm gonna show them. We're gonna have world class revival and then they'll eat their words, you know. That's not a good response to rejection. That's a negative response. Why did I respond that way? Well, probably because I wasn't secure in the fact that I'm God's son, that I'm loved, and I'm doing what he's asked me to. Therefore, he's well pleased with me. And that should be enough. That should be enough. That should be enough for all of us. 
if we're God's son, if we're dearly loved and we're doing what he wants us to, his stamp of approval should be enough for us so that when we receive rejection from other people, God's voice is a lot louder than the voice of others of rejection from other people. And as for Jesus, that's why he was able to respond because God the Father gave him his identity. God the Father told him what was true of him. And God the Father's voice rang loudest in his ears over and above the other voices. And Jason talked beautifully about this um, yesterday and talking about what is our identity in Christ. And as believers, we should really have this thing figured out. Right? Who are we? Who are you? Not who do your parents say you are, who do your friends or your non-believing friends or not any of that. Does God, as someone who's in Christ, say that you are? We should have that figured out. You should know. Jason covered it wonderfully yesterday. And if you weren't there, sorry, go listen to his recording. I don't have the time to go through it all. But you should have identity in Christ figured out and settled because the scripture says who you are if you're in Christ. So you should have a few of those verses just in your back pocket all the time. Jason talked about how this leads to holiness because when you realize who you are, that actually, according to God, who you are, that actually translates into the way that you live. It's also true of rejection, that when you realize who you are in God's eyes, then the voices of rejection just kind of roll off your shoulders because it doesn't matter what my boss or my employer or anyone else says about me because I know I am in God's eyes and that's who I really am. At my core, that's who I am. And so just an encouragement for you okay, to really have an arsenal of scripture in your back pocket so that you can have this whole identity in Christ thing figured out. So next time, whatever it is that you go through rejection, whether it's big or small, whether it's someone saying, it's kind of silly. It is crazy. Little things like that kind of get us down. Like it did me. Right? I'm not impenetrable. Mm-hmm. Right? I didn't have this immediately on the forefront of my mind. Right? So uh, to kind of bring all this together, to kind of package it up, obviously we've went through a lot of points and we've went through a good amount of text here. Okay? Um, to summarize, bring it all home. Jesus' program of discipleship was what? It was, first of all, to be with him, spend time with him, extravagant amount of time with Jesus. And then when you see him doing something, you should do it too. You should aim to be just like him. You should aim to imitate him. You should aim to be like him in every way. That's Jesus' program of discipleship. Second thing we talked about was Jesus talking to the religious leaders answering their sort of accusation and then responding to their rejection. And when he faced rejection, how did he do it? Well, he didn't have some strong negative response like we oftentimes do, but instead he was able to remain secure in who he was because he knew his identity, because he remembered what God had said about him, even all the way back to his baptism, and that God's voice was louder than the competing voices. Kind of some of the main points just to bring them home as we close, um, what I wanted to do was, I was a queued up guy. Based on some of these things that we've read, based on some of the things that we've covered and looked at, um, we should always be people who are saying, and uh, what about, how does this, how does this change, how does this affect, right? how do I, what do I do? What's God asked me to do with this information? So I made up just a few reflection questions here based on the text, based on uh, what we just looked at. So um, I'll go ahead and I guess pray for us and then um, I'll leave some time and space to think on, spend some time alone, you and the Lord, and say, hey, these questions up here, wrestle with them, consider them. Okay. Well, we love you. We thank you. Um, God, I always thank you for your word. Um, how it gives life, how it brings light. Lord, is truth. Um, God, thank you for what you've done in binding up the strong man so that we as your possessions can be taken out of Satan's house and brought into your kingdom, the kingdom of light. We thank you, Lord. May we be people who live as your disciples, spend time with you, prolonged 
extended, regular, daily, extravagant time with you, hearing from your word and what we might know, God, how can we imitate you more? How can we do more of what you want us to do? Who do you want us to be? But we want to be your disciples. We want to imitate you. We want to be your students. We want to be learners from you and your ways. And so thank you for this group, Lord. And also we just ask that you come, pour your spirit out, Lord. We need more of you um, each and every day. Every individual here, corporately, we need more of you. We want to see you in greater ways than you are right now in our lives, the lives of those around us, the lives of our community. So we love you. We praise the name of Jesus. Amen.